Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for being with me today. This is the first day I'm in a different time slot. I'm extending uh, from 5 to 6 Central Time, so uh, welcome. I know maybe you are jumping in your car and, and you're thinking, I, I should be listening to Alistair Begg right now, but I, he's moved to, I think, 11.30 in the morning. You can always catch that show then or catch it on podcast, but I'm more than excited to be here right now because uh, I'm always stuck in traffic between five and six, and I'm thinking so many Faith Radio listeners listen to Faith Radio in the car, and then they get off work under normal circumstances right around five and jump in the car and head home, and um, it'd be awfully nice to be on the radio right about now when people are in their car wanting to listen to what's going on in the world and hopefully uh, what's going on in your faith life and Growing Your Faith, and today we're going to do it with my friend Jeff Verdorn. I asked him to be my first guest in this new time slot, and he said, eh, let me think about it. But uh, <laughs> he finally agreed, and I'm glad he decided to do that. Jeff, welcome. Hi, Bill. Now, Jeff uh, is a Bible teacher and also uh, is teaching right now a course on end times at Grace Church in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. And I think uh, people could streamline, they could stream that, couldn't they? They can. It's actually yeah. on you. The whole class, we, we were teaching the end times class, then obviously we got shut down. And so the class has continued basically online. So all the lessons are online on YouTube. Cool. So yeah. And today we're going to talk about um, that's not in the Bible and some common mistaught scriptures. And I thought this would be kind of a, a fun thing to go through today. It would. But uh, first, I just want to say congratulations, by the way, on your new time. This thank is you, a thank big you, move thank for you. Thank you. What is that, um, my stomach gurgling? Yes, it is. Yeah. I'm hungry all of a sudden. Starting out as a as a sub in the afternoons, right? I think that's where you got your start. I then did, you, yes. Then you got yes. your morning show, and then yes. you moved to the afternoon then show. Some janitorial things, and then I got this job. And now you yeah. got the drive time. Congratulations. Yeah. Working everything around here. All right. <laughs> Which brings me to my first point. Not in the Bible. Cleanliness is next to godliness. I love this one. I was just talking to my mom about this one, and she said, Hi, yes. Carol. She's listening. Isn't she, she is. I think yeah. she's probably listening. She said she used to hear this all the time. And this is one of those things that uh, came out of the Reformation. Actually, it's I, I searched, and the first use of this phrase I actually found in a sermon by John Wesley back in the 1778s. And I think the during the Reformation and the moral cleanliness that was kind of the push during that time uh, made this phrase very, very popular. So cleanliness was next to godliness, and it's maybe in this time we need to bring it back with the whole COVID and washing <laughs> yeah, hands yeah, right. and stuff like that, but it's actually not in the Bible. What's in the Bible is that God has actually made you clean, right? He's washed you from all your your sin and all unrighteousness, and he's made you perfectly clean and righteous in his eyes. So that's the biblical or spiritual truth. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a sweet ism, though, uh, because I, you know, you used to hear grandmothers say that kind of stuff, and oh, they did. Cleanliness and, is next to godliness, and cleanliness is good, right? Yeah, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's right. There's nothing wrong. Yeah. All right. Here's another one. God helps those who help themselves. I think this is one that, especially in America, we are a kind of 
independent, entrepreneurial, you know, do it by your bootstraps kind of people. And so this one rings true to a lot of people that God helps those to, that helps themselves. But this is, again, this is not in the Bible. Um, one of the first places that I found this phrase is actually in an old fable uh, of a man praying to Hercules, actually. So this has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. And in fact, when you really think of this one, God helps those who help themselves. It's really the exact opposite of that when you think of biblical Christianity. Christ, the Bible says, is your life, right? And Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. In fact, one of Paul's favorite descriptions of those who are in him is this in Christ, in Christ Jesus. So you see Galatians 3, for in Christ Jesus, we are sons of God. In Philippians 1, it says to all the saints in Christ Jesus, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ is in us. One of my favorite uh, books called Classic Christianity, it's an old book by a guy by the name of Bob George. He wrote one quote, and I don't often quote authors outside of the Bible, but I love this quote. He said, living the Christian life isn't hard. It's impossible. Only Christ can do it. So as we let Christ live in and through us, he is the one who lives our life. I remember reading the title of a book a long time ago. It said, God is my co-pilot. And I was teaching on that at the time. I said, if God's your co-pilot, switch seats. (laughs) Maybe more accurate, Jeff, would be God helps those who can't help themselves. Yeah, we can't God. we can't do anything, especially when it comes to salvation obviously, right? right? Of course. It's all God. It's all God. So, absolutely. All right, this next one's kind of a big one, I think, cuz I've heard this before too. That's not in the Bible and that would be this too shall pass. This too shall pass. It's often quoted uh many times by Christians, but non-Christians as well, that says, you know, this is kind of one of these promises. It's, it's supposed to be comfort when someone's going through a trial or tribulation, that it's, it's, don't worry, this too shall pass. But actually, God doesn't actually promise that in this world. Now, Paul describes our troubles as light and momentary, but in the context of that passage in 2 Corinthians 4, he's really talking about eternity, right? So our troubles in this life are light and momentary compared to all of eternity, where we will be rejoicing with Christ and peace and harmony and all that stuff. We live in a fallen world with fallen people and a fallen angel looking to kill and steal, destroy. We have disease and sickness and natural disasters and riots and pandemics and all of these things. And the presumption is kind of here that when they say this too shall pass, it's kind of like... They're assuming that all this is from God in some way, and he's the one turning the switches off and on. Like, okay, here's some trouble for a while, and now at some point in time in the future, God is going to turn the switch off. But that presupposes that God is the source of these troubles, the source of these bad events, the source of this evil, and that's just not true. When you understand Genesis, we live in a fallen world. Bad stuff happens. And if you you don't have to look that far. Fox's Book of Martyrs, right? Persecution.org is another place where you can see what is happening to Christians around the world. And if you talk to Christians in countries like Afghanistan and Somalia and Libya, Pakistan, Iran, these are the countries that are rated the highest at persecution.org for persecution of Christian. Many of them, their trials and tribulations don't pass. 
Paul was imprisoned, beaten, stoned, ended up getting killed for his faith. Stephen was stoned at the beginning of Acts. Peter, it said, tradition says, was crucified upside down because he said he wasn't, he didn't feel worthy to be crucified the same way as Christ was. Well, you, you look at those realities and the promise, this too shall pass, rings awfully hollow, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So this too shall pass, Christians, in the next life, in eternity. But there's that promise just doesn't exist in this life for Christians. There's too many examples where Christians succumb to disease, sickness, pain, sorrow, whatever. All right, here's another one that's not in the Bible, and that would be, God will not give you more than you can bear. This is a cousin, really, to the last one when you mm-hmm. think about it, right? Don't worry, God won't give you more trials, troubles, tribulation, sickness, disease, whatever, than you can bear. And actually, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1.8. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the troubles we are experiencing in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despised of life itself. Mm -hmm. Paul had had enough. He was being tormented beyond what he can bear. Now, so where does this come from? Why do Christians say it? Well, it really comes, I think, from 1 Corinthians 10, where God says, no temptation has overtaken you except that is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So you see that it's actually the temptation that God won't let you be tempted beyond with you, what you can bear. Trials and tribulations are common in this world. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just a clarification of what actually God says he will keep from. It's kind of like for temptation, which we know it comes from the evil one, right? Temptation comes from the evil one. God does not tempt, the scripture says. But God says he kind of puts this fence around that and says, I won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And then this problem, promise, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So remember, Paul says we're hard-pressed on every side. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. Perplexed, but not in despair. Struck down, but not destroyed. This trouble may come in this world and actually strike us down, but that's not the end. We have victory, struck down but not destroyed. Our eternal fate is in God's hand, and I think that's the big message from both of these, Mm -hmm. is that our hope is not in, you know, victory in this world. My old pastor said there's no final victory in this world. Our final victory is eternal. I love that. So, Jeff, is that a little bit of a case of taking a little bit of verse A and, you know, cutting it into a little bit Mm -hmm. of verse B and... Just kind of blending things together? I think so. I think that's exactly what's happened. People say they read that passage from Corinthians, and then they apply it, I think, improperly to trials and tribulations when it's talking about temptation. Yeah. Jeff Verdorn is my guest. We're going to take a little break. We'll be right back with more of That's Not in the Bible and Common Mistaught Scriptures. Be right back. That is the walk-up music for Jeff Verdorn, my guest today, who's doing an outstanding job. We're talking about that's not in the Bible and common mistaught scriptures. All right, Jeff, let's uh, move on to uh, money 
is the root of all evil. Hmm, not in the Bible. Okay. First Timothy 6 says it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. You don't, it, it, it um, the Bible says some people eager for money have wandered from faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is a heart issue. If you have money, by the way, if you have three squares a day, a place to lay your head and some extra change in your pocket, you're wealthier than 90% of the people in this world. Mm-hmm. All right, so wealth is one of these relative things. If everybody had a billion dollars, would we all be rich? If everybody had nothing, would we all be poor? See what I'm saying? Wealth is a relative thing. It's when we compare ourselves to others, that's where I think we get in trouble. That's why we have the, 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 the commandment on coveting. So I think it's greed, envy, all those things that Paul's talking about. This is my first hour in this time slot, Jeff. Don't be asking me these hard <laughs> questions. All right? Well, you I think... break me in a little bit. The key here is contentment. So there's the heart thing. That's easy, right? Well, actually, it's not easy because Paul says he learned the secret of being content. So this is not an easy thing. True contentment is not an easy thing. True. Um, so also one last thing on this, just... You don't have to, if you work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord, and you're a hard worker like that as if working for the Lord, chances are you will be successful in this life, right? And and just remember, God even gives you the ability to produce that wealth. So be thankful for what you have. And also, obviously, if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. God wants you to be be generous with what you have, um, especially with the body of, of Christ. So there you go. Okay. This next one's a biggie because I hear this all the time. We are all God's children. It is. I call this the big lie of the world. And you hear it all the time. Unfortunately, you also hear it um, from Christian teachers talking about we're all children of God. The, the biblical truth is that all people were made in the image of God. That's the Latin imagio Dei, that we are in the image of God. Um, And also with that is we are all loved by God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So God made us in his image. He loves all of us. But actually the Bible makes a big distinction between those who have believed and are saved and those who are not and so only through faith in Christ do we, are we given the right to be called children of God. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, John 1, 12. So it's in our new birth when we are born again as believers in Christ Jesus, that's the time that we become children of God. Mm-hmm. I think everybody knows that experience where you're at a barbecue in someone's backyard and Someone pulls out a camera and says, well, let's just get just the Verdorns. Let's just get just Jeff's family. And nobody, you know, goes, well, that's not fair. Everybody understands who Jeff's family is, and that's the family shot. That's everyone who belongs in your personal family. That, Unless that, someone photobombs it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. It's so like everybody gets it. Yeah, so, you might have some Yahoo with a banjo photobombing oh, some picture no, no. sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I get that. But, you know... It's, uh, are you in God's family? If Jesus showed up with a photographer, you know, would you be included in the picture? 
It's scripture says that we are adopted into his family, given the right to be called his children. We now call him, your last guest said that phrase, Abba Father from Romans. We now can call him Daddy. We are part of his family now. It scripture actually says before you're saved, this is one of these descriptions. It says your father is the devil, right? right. You are outside of he's the family taken, God. He's taking you captive to do his will. Absolutely. You're Second separate. Timothy 2.23 or 24. Yeah. You're separated from him. You're outside of fellowship. You do not have peace with him. It's all those descriptions of how God describes those who are who are dead in their trespasses and sins and those who have been made alive through faith in Christ Jesus. So, All right. Let's move on. Another uh, that's not in the Bible and common mistaught scriptures. God works in mysterious ways. He, uh, you hear this one a lot when you, sometimes even amongst Christians, when you're debating theological topics, and especially when it comes to salvation a lot of times, and maybe someone will just kind of give up with the with their argument and just, well, you know, it's just God works in mysterious ways. In other words, it's kind of this, well, we just can't understand it. Now, we are finite beings. God is an infinite God. We will never understand the fullness of God. We're we're a finite being. So don't get me wrong with this. But the things that he has revealed to us in Scripture, he wants us to understand, especially doctrines like salvation. And in fact, Paul says, for example, in in Ephesians 1.9, and he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to to his good pleasure and uh, Colossians one twenty six says the mystery that has been kept hidden for the ages and for generations, but now disclosed to the Lord's people. They the the mystery was they had no idea of this salvation that was coming. We now know of it, right? We have, we can have salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and new life in Him. The new birth that poor Nicodemus in John chapter three just didn't understand. We now, with the full revelation of the New Testament, can understand what he was talking about to Nicodemus that night. All right, let's move on from not in the Bible to things true Christians will never hear or experience. And these are items that are generally taught to scare Christians into holy living. This is one of these, every one of these, at some point in time... Students have said, oh, I just, I dread hearing this, or I don't want to be called that, or I don't want that to happen to me, or whatever. And it's it's one of these things, it's like, don't worry. It's not going to. So let's look at these. All right, let's start with the first one, Matthew seven twenty three. depart from me, I never knew you. Yeah, so this is... Uh in in context here, the rest of that, it says, Lord, Lord, some, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, right? But only he who does the will of my Father. Uh, later on in verse 23, like he said, he says, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. Well, guess what? A true Christian will never, ever hear these words. This passage, if you just go up a few verses, remember context is always king when it comes to understanding a passage. You have to understand the context of which it's written, the context of the letter, and really the context of of all of Scripture to truly understand any doctrine. But this one, it's easy. We go up to verse 15, and it says, this is Jesus speaking to false prophets. They are the they of this. They, I never knew you, is the false prophets prophets. 
And uh, so a Christian, a true believer in Christ, is brought near to God. We are his possession. Jesus will never say to you, away from me. In fact, this assurance of salvation is one of the big themes of the New Testament, that he who began a good work in you will finish it. He's, he's, he's giving you the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Romans 8 says that nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You are in him and he is in you and nothing can change that for all of eternity. So Jesus will never say to someone who's truly born again, depart from me. Beautiful. All right. This next one is one that I think has scared a lot of people. And this is, comes from uh, John 15. talks about uh, people who are not bearing fruit will be cut off. This is one we have talked about before on your air, and it's, it's so powerful when you truly understand. Most of the time, you can trust and understand your English Bible, but there are some times that I don't think the English accurately, you know, captures the Greek. And I think this is one of them because clearly in the story of the vine and the branches from John 15, Jesus is the vine. Remember, let's read it. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Well, the lesson here is that the branches that are connected to the vine, Christ, are saved and they will bear fruit for God. The other lesson here is not all branches bear the same amount of fruit. Some bear more than others. But we know later in this story that it's the branches that are separated from the vine, they are the ones that are gathered up and burned, right? So that's clearly a picture of the hellfire, right, of of damnation, of condemnation. If you are not connected to the vine, you're condemned. Um, So the question is, if you are in me, and it says that, he says, every branch in me, but don't have much fruit on your branch, what is he going to do? Well, the Greek word for cuts off here is actually the Greek airo, A-I-R-O, and it really means to lift up. And when you think about it, if you go into a vineyard and you see a branch connected to the vine that's down and in the dirt and not bearing fruit, what does the gardener do? He lifts up that branch and he ties it off and he'll prune it so that it might become fruitful. We just said a true believer in Christ will never be separated from Christ, right? So if you are in Christ as a branch, you cannot be cut off, but you can be lifted up and pruned so that you will bear fruit for him. Outstanding. All right. We are talking with Jeff Redorn today, and we're chatting about things true Christians will never hear or experience. And these are items that generally are taught to scare Christians into holy living. And we've gone uh, through a number of them. We've still got a few more to go. When we come back, we're going to talk about falling away, the parable of the sower, and also the lukewarm Christian where Jesus spits... Out of, spit out of Jesus's mouth, and then well done, good and faithful servant. And Christians are invited to the wedding supper. And I know the plans I have for you. That's all coming up next. We're gonna take a little break and be right back. Thanks for listening today, and we're really glad to be uh, in this hour right now. And then if you're in your car driving home, and you're not getting Alistair Begg, you're getting me. I hope that's okay. Alistair's on 11:30. We'll be right back.
today at UNWSP. Welcome back to the show. Jeff Redorn is my guest, and he's doing an exceptionally great job talking about that's not in the Bible and common mistaught scriptures, although the real pressure he feels is giving the father of the bride speech on Saturday night. <laughs> I'm ready. Are you I nervous? think I'm ready. Uh, you know, I'm ready for it. Uh, Good. She's, he's a wonderful young man, and uh, they've known they've been dating for, I think, three and a half years now, or almost four years. And uh, yeah, we've the, now our wedding plans have changed dramatically because of the whole COVID thing. But we're going to have a wonderful uh, night on Saturday night, and she's going to be off. Man, I've told her, you know, a marriage is not about one evening; it's about a lifetime. So, um, so despite our change of plans, uh, I'm I, and now I'm praying for no rain because it's going to be outdoors. Wow! All right. And again, I repeat: if you need an amateur banjo player for the event, let me know. <laughs> All right, let's get back to uh, Fall Away, the parable of the sower, Matthew 13. This is another one. This has to do with, um, it's, it's really parallel with the cuts off the branch that if you don't bear fruit, God's going to cut you off in some way, shape, or form from him. And it's the, just an interpretation of this parable that um, I think commonly, we all know the first seed. Remember, there's four seeds. The first seed falls on the path and the birds come and eat it, and that's Satan taking away the, the seed. The seed is the gospel. The soil is men's hearts. But the second and third seed, this is where a little bit of the debate comes in. Are they saved or not saved? And I say, look, look, read the parables. The seed enters into the soil. There's germination. We have this new life from this dead seed. I think that's the picture of being born again and having life. The the second seed is in the rocky soil, and um, it withers. And then this, the third seed, it falls in the... In the uh, the thorny soils, and it's choked out. And in one of the places it says, when persecution comes, they fall away, right? And I think that's in the Luke version of this uh, parable. And people say, see, if you're not bearing fruit, you're going to fall away from Christ. Well, once again, this is one of these Greek things, because the Greek for fall away actually means to withdraw, to shrink back, and to withdraw oneself. And when you think about it, that's ex- the parable says, and when persecution comes, they fall away, they shrink back, they withdraw. That's exactly a description. Say you're a new believer in Christ. You went to some, you know, festival on the weekend with some friends. They invited you and you got saved and you go back to the water cooler on Monday morning and you say, you know, I got saved. I'm a born again Christian. I'm a believer in Jesus. And maybe they start mocking you right away. Oh, you don't believe that stuff, do you? And they shrink back, they withdraw, and now they're not fruit-bearing Christians, but they're choked out. They're scorched Christians. Not only do I believe that number two and number three are born-again believers in Christ, just not bearing fruit, I actually think that's the picture of much of the church, that we have much of the church that are, are out there, and they're scorched, and they're choked out, and they need care and nurturing and feeding and and instruction of the truth and God's ways to build them up so that they will be that fourth seed that grows and bears fruit in their lives. All right, let's talk about a spit out of Jesus's mouth like a lukewarm Christian. I think that comes out of Revelation 3. It does, Revelation 3. This is one of my favorite because this is just, this is taught this way everywhere. And this actually happened to me when I was in junior high in Sunday school. 
And my Sunday school teacher put up on the board, hot, lukewarm, and cold. And he asked us, guys, rate your faith. And so there's 20 teenage kids there. Well, no one wanted to be cold, right? Because that means you're, I guess that means you're outside of the family of God and you're not saved. But you know what? No one wanted to be hot because no one wanted to be that, you know, Bible-thumping Jesus guy, right? Mm -hmm, Yeah. So 20 of these kids, every single one of us said, lukewarm. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what he did next? He read the rest of the passage where Jesus says, but because you are lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And 20 young kids went, oh no, (laughs) Jesus is going to spit us out of his mouth. Right now, what was he teaching, and 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 when people teach it this way, what do they really mean? They're really meaning they want you to be hot for God. They want you to be all in for Jesus, right? But this temp, it's used as a temperature scale. Hot is all in, cold is don't want you at all, and lukewarm is kind of on the fence, right? Half in, half out, whatever. The problem is, is this passage is not a ra- a temperature scale of your faith. It's in fact, it's not about your faith at all. Go back to the passage and read this very beginning of the passage. And Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. He says, I wish you were either hot or cold. Now, if cold meant unsaved, why would Jesus say, I wish you were cold if it was about your faith? You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. He's saying, I wish you were hot or cold. So hot and cold are good. Jesus says, I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. So the lukewarm's the bad one, the one that's going to be separated from him, the one that's going to be cast out, the one that's going to be spit out of his mouth. The hot and cold are good. Now, if you know a little bit about the church in Laodicea that Jesus is speaking this to, you would know, and they would have known, that there were cold water springs coming into the city from Colossae, and and that water was useful, cold, spring water, good for drinking and cooking and so on. And there was hot mineral water coming in from the city of Heropolis. That was useful, right, for bathing and so on. So if you were hot, you were useful. And if you were cold, you were useful. It's like the branch connected to the vine. It's the same thing. Jesus is saying, I wish you were connected to the vine, saved, so that you will be useful to me so that I can bear fruit in your life. I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm. Now, what happens when spring water and hot mineral water mix together? They become a lukewarm, brackish water. It's good for nothing. Mm -hmm. You spit it out of your mouth. And that's exactly the picture here. It's just like the branches that are not connected to the vine that are gathered up and burned. So the lukewarm are spit out of Jesus's mouth because it's the lukewarm in this passage who are unsaved. The hot and the cold are saved. So in reality, if this way is true that I'm explaining here, there's no such thing as a lukewarm Christian. The lukewarm in this passage are unsaved. And when you think about other passages, that's this is God sets this bifurcation of mankind. You're either in or you're not in. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. There's no straddling the fence with God. You either have your sins forgiven or you're not. So I think that is a better explanation or more proper understanding of what lukewarm is all about. But you hear it all the time. Right. And I get what the motivation is for people teaching it that other way. Mm-hmm. They want people to get on fire for God. I get that. Yeah. All right, Jeff, you've been making a lot of friends to this point, and <laughs> now you're going to start losing them. 
Let's look at Matthew 25. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Oh, this is one of these that, oh, again, you hear this all the time. I want to hear on that day when my Lord returns. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And it sounds really good for people who have been, you know, working for God their whole lives. And at the end of the day, they want to hear those words. And and there's nothing wrong with, you know, doing well and doing good for God. Don't get me wrong with this about that Christians won't hear this passage. But where this is actually spoken, the context, once again, of Matthew 25, where this passage comes from, is the sheep and the goat judgment. And when does the sheep and the goat judgment happen? Well, it says at the start of this passage, it says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's the second coming of Christ, when Christ returns to the earth, Revelation 19, his eyes ablaze, riding a white horse with the robe and on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, right? That great scene from Revelation 19 mm-hmm. when Jesus returns. One of the things that he does when he returns to the earth is he will gather the, the survivors of the tribulation period that just happened, right? The previous seven years is the tribulation. And it says in the scriptures, he will gather the nations before him, and he will put the sheep on his right, the righteous on his right, and he will put the goats on his left, the unrighteous, and he will say to the goats, the unsaved, basically, depart from me, right? What we just were talking about in Matthew chapter 7. And they go away into the fire. But the sheep enter into his kingdom that he's establishing, his thousand-year reign on earth. And that is when he says to the sheep of the sheep and the goat judgments, well done, my good and faithful servant. This, is a, this exact phrase comes from the parable that comes immediately before the sheep and the goat judgment, and it parallels, parallels, it's hard to say, parallels the sheep and the goat. So I believe that phrase is spoken to the sheep at the sheep and the goat judgments. So we will hear Jesus say that because remember, we've come back with Christ riding on our own white horses and the armies of heaven were following him dressed in fine linen, white and clean, each one riding on his own horse. We get to come back with Jesus. I'm a firm believer that the rapture will happen first pre-tribulationally before the tribulation period and then we return with Christ at his second coming. So we'll hear him say that but we aren't the object of those who he's speaking that to. We've, we've been glorified, and uh, we're in our glorified bodies returning with him. So it's just a contextual thing. Mm-hmm. And by the way, we're also described as the bride of Christ. Our inheritance is actually much greater than well done, my good and faithful servant, right? Yeah. Which bride, what bride wants to hear that? At their on their wedding day, right when they're joined to their bride, well done, my good and faithful servant. Our inheritance is much better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just from a common sense standpoint, too. I mean, I know that we we want to get the big pat on the back, but it didn't occur to me that the first thing when you enter glory, when you enter the presence of God, the first thing you want to do is hear something about you. Huh. I mean, I I want to spend the first trillion years just gazing at the face of Jesus in complete adoration. It, it's, How do I care about me at that point? I, I think it's absolutely, when I, you know, one of the things that happens first when we go to heaven is the Bema seat where we get rewarded. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, this is another one of these kind of themes that goes with this. 
we get this crown. And there's so many teachings on crowns. And I read the book of Revelation. And you know what happens when we get our crowns? What do we do with them? What's the first we thing lay them we down. do? We lay them down at his feet. It's almost like saying, Lord, you just rewarded me for my righteous acts, which can only be done because you are living in and through me. Remember the vine and the branches? We are just a branch. He's the vine that bears the fruit because apart from him, we can do nothing. And I think in glory, we get our crowns. We realize that. And we lay our crowns at his feet. Mm -hmm. All right. You want to step on some more toes? Sure. All right. How about I know the plans I have for you out of Jeremiah 29? Oh, I know it. This is so many people's life verse. And we hear it all the time, right, from Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. This is one of these where... If, if this is your life verse, okay, please just hang with me for a second. Because God knows the, the, the plant that he has for you. Of course he does. Mm-hmm. But let's understand the proper context of this passage. Who is this about? And if we go up into verse 4, just before this in Jeremiah 29, we see that this is, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all of those carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So the context of this passage is spoken to Israel, specifically Israel that had been taken captive into Babylon, and he's saying, don't worry, captive, sitting over there in Babylon. I know the plans that I have for you. In fact, he's going to bring them back to their land after the 70-year captivity in Babylon. But really, I don't think this is Israel won't experience the full measure of Jeremiah 29, 11, until that day we were just talking about. Until Christ returns, Israel will be saved and they will enter into this kingdom, this kingdom that they've been looking for all these years, this kingdom that even the, the woman who came to Jesus said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, set one of my sons on your left and one on the right. In fact, the last question the disciples asked after Jesus was resurrected in Acts chapter 1, before he goes up to heaven, they ask him, Jesus, is it now? Now are you going to bring in your kingdom? And uh, this is the kingdom that's coming. And that kingdom for Israel is, I think, what Jeremiah 29, 11 is all about. Now, if you're a believer and this is your verse, obviously God knows your days and he knows the plans he has for you. And if you want to continue to use it as your life first, use it. Just know the true context of it. All right, Jeff Verdorn's my guest. We'll take one more short break and be right back. Welcome back to the show. Jeff Verdorn's my guest. He's also my friend. And we're talking about things that are not in the Bible, common mistaught scriptures, and uh, things that are commonly misspoken, like do not judge your brother. Yeah, this is another one that it's used as an excuse not to basically call out your brother or maybe they're sinning or maybe you're pointing it out. Now, you got to be very careful here because uh, you don't want to be caught in gossip and, you know, things like that. 
Um, but I think God wants us to point these things out to our brothers, as he says, for the purposes of restoration. Um, and this is another one where it's, it's a, little, a little understanding of the Greek. The Greek word for do not judge here is the word krino. There's actually two definitions. The first is to discern, to judge, right? And this is good. God calls us to discern. Um, should we not judge those within the church, Paul says, do you not judge, know that we will judge the world? This is uh, a, a description of knowing right from wrong, discerning, being discerning, test the spirits, right? So that's good. But the second definition of crino is to condemn or damn, right? And that's what we are to avoid. That's what we shouldn't do. We shouldn't condemn or damn the world because actually John chapter 3 says they stand condemned already. But within the church, we shouldn't condemn our brothers. We shouldn't condemn them or damn them within the body. Because why? Because Romans 8, 1 says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God doesn't condemn a believer, then we definitely shouldn't condemn. So I think that passage really should be read. Do not condemn your brother. All right, here's another one. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A little bit commonly misspoken, maybe. It's it's true. So people, but I think people apply it to certain things that weren't necessarily meant when Paul wrote this, right? So I love this. It's it's a, a good friend of mine, Dave Gibson, calls this the Ten Finger Prayer. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he brings each of his fingers in and makes two fists and, you know, I'm strong in Christ. Mm -hmm. But I think people use this for, uh, especially in sports, right? You know, I can do anything. I can win this game. I can, you know, run this marathon. I can do, you know, some kind of personal achievement or personal goal. And I just, that's not the context of what Paul's talking about there. In context, once again, it's Paul. He says in verse 12, for example, right before this, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty, and I've learned the secret of being content in every and uh, every situation. So Paul's talking about I can do everything in Christ, anything in Christ, and he's talking about living by faith, really, about understanding the secret of being content and living by faith. So if you're struggling with living by faith, I think that's where this ten-fingered prayer comes in right? Not necessarily your goal. Now, pray about your personal goals, obviously. Pray about everything. But, uh, and it's not wrong to apply a verse like that if you're correct. trying to run a marathon, and I can absolutely, I not. can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I mean, if you're repeating that verse over and over in your head, that's a beautiful thing, right? That's correct. Okay. Totally agree. But to keep it in context, I mean, it's, it's living by faith and not to hijack this verse the way it's been done before. That's well said. I like that phrase, not to hijack it for things maybe not uh, appropriate for the verse. Okay. Great way to say it. Yep. All right. How about things in the gospel, the, um, some big, some small, and most, most of it is our interpretive issues, um, like Peter was reinstated in John chapter 21. This is an interpretation thing, and it's one of my favorite stories in Scripture, The title above it in my Bible, the title above this section is Jesus reinstates Peter. And then it goes through the story. And and you know the story. This is where Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? 
Um, once again, a little Greek goes a long way to understanding the Scripture, because this is three questions. It, it obviously, commentators will say it parallels Peter's failure when he denied Jesus three times, right? So here Peter says, I'll do anything for you, Jesus, and then just a little while later, he's denying him three times, and then the, we hear the rooster crow, and, and then they catch eyes. Can you imagine that moment? Ooh. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. And so Peter knows what happened there, right? It just broke him. Um, but then here it's commonly taught that somehow Peter needs to be reinstated because of his failure earlier. And I think this is one of these denominational things. Some people kind of elevate Peter up to be more than, you know, maybe just a man. In fact, in Roman Catholicism, he's the first pope, right? So in some way he needs to be reinstated. But when you truly understand this passage here and we look at it, it's, it's actually not Peter being reinstated. He doesn't need to be reinstated to anything. Jesus asked him the first time, Peter, do you agapeo me, agape love? Do you love me with everything you got? And Peter responds to him and says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Phileo, Philadelphia, brotherly love, right? You know that I phileo you. The second time Jesus says, Peter, do you agapeo me? And again, Peter says, Jesus, I phileo you. I love you like a brother. The third time Jesus asks, Peter, do you phileo me? He changed the question. It says, and then Peter was hurt because the third time Jesus asked him, do you phileo me? Do you love me? And people say, well, yeah, Peter was hurt because he asked him a third time. No, Peter wasn't hurt because he asked him a third time. Peter was hurt because he changed the question. Peter was hurt because Jesus is basically saying, Peter, is that all you got for me, brotherly love? And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. Right? Now, I can tell you, that the Peter that writes First and Second Peter, after he's filled with the Holy Spirit and writes those two letters, is going to say, and, and by the way, dies for his Lord and Savior. He's going to say, Lord, I agapeo you with everything I have. So don't get too hard on Peter here when he says brotherly love. He doesn't have the Spirit of God yet. But I don't think this is Peter's reinstatement. I think Peter actually falls short again. He's basically saying, Lord, that's all I got for you. Brotherly love, you know all things. Now we, hopefully, can read that now with that fuller understanding of those two Greek words and say, Lord, I love you. I agapeo you with all my heart and soul and strength and mind because we have the Spirit of God in us and we love you with everything we got. That's great. All right, we have just a minute or two left. Do men have less ribs than women? <laughs> uh, so I've actually read this on the internet, so it must be true, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. If you know, it's funny because if you you uh, if you cut the tail off a dog. You know, a lot of dogs, are they, you bob their tail, mm -hmm. and then they have puppies. Are the puppies born with tails or without tails? They're born with tails, with of course, tails, yeah. right? Yeah, so right, of course. It does say that God took a rib out of the man and made woman. Uh, but today, 
men and women have the same number of ribs, right? 12 on each side, yeah. I think it is. <laughs> so this is just like the belly button, by the way. Well, this is a little different than the belly button. But I always teach, does, did Adam have a belly button? I don't know. Well, I don't think Adam did have a belly button. A belly button is a scar from an umbilical cord when you were born, right? Well, Adam was made by God. So there's that great theological question and debate. Did Adam have a belly button? Mm-hmm. I say no, he didn't. Jeff, this has been a lot of fun. I love going through these verses, and I know everybody um, knows these verses and has maybe grappled with them a little bit because these are challenging verses. Yeah, especially the the verses that a Christian will never hear. I, I came up with this list because I, I would be asked those questions. Well, what if Jesus spits me out of my mouth? What I know. I hear it all the time. I've heard it many times. Yep. Or what if he says, depart from me? Yeah. And if you are born again, he holds you in his hand. And nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing will snatch you out of his hand. That's right. Yeah, beautiful. All right, thank you so much for being here. This concludes uh, my first day on the job, 4 to 6 Central Time, and I've loved it. I hope uh, you've enjoyed it as well. Jeff Redorn has been my guest, and uh, Saturday night he's father of the bride. So congratulations Mm. to your family. Thank you, Bill. And uh, great to see you once again. That wraps up our show. If you missed any of it, you can go to MyFaithRadio.com, Afternoons with Bill show, and you can hear the podcast there or pass them on to a friend because I bet you know someone who would enjoy this message today from Jeff. Have a great night, and thank you for listening and supporting Faith Radio. We are so very close to uh, making our our budget goal, and thank you for your generous support. If you have not uh, had a chance to Support Faith Radio, and it's on your heart to do so. Thank you so much. Have a great night, and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.